0: Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Ring of Fire, Tom Hartman, The Young Turks, and Counterspin.
1: Joining us now is Jeffrey Nunberg. He's a professor of linguistics at the University of California, Berkeley, and is the author of Talking Right. So, Jeffrey, if there has been a war of words, I'd have to say the liberals have lost, haven't they?
2: Well, yeah, we've been sort of routed on on this one. Not just in the bumper sticker wars, but phrases like clear skies and healthy forests and so on, but the underlying, what I call the ground-level language of American politics.
1: Well, what did the conservatives just have, strategists that could come up with Orwellian phrases, and we just didn't?
2: Well, well, you know, that that certainly may be part of it. The Democrats have been pretty tone-deaf about this stuff, but... It isn't really the Orwellian phrases that do the damage, despite how irritated liberals get about phrases like clear skies and uh, no child left behind and death tax, They don't really move public opinion much. Where the damage is really done is these words like values. And elite and bias and so on, and, and that has to do less with the words themselves than with the underlying story that uh, the right has been able to tell about. but
1: ha- have they figured that out? Have they figured out that there is this bag full of words that Americans react to, where it comes to attacking liberals? But liberals haven't figured out how to deal with that.
2: Well, you know, I, I think there are a couple of things. First of all, I, I think it has less to do with the words themselves, as I say than with the narrative that they tell, this story about the good people of the heartland whose uh, moral principles and religious values and uh, standards of patriotism and personal morality have all been betrayed by these effete elite Volvo driving oh, okay East and West coast uh, liberals and so on. once you got that You got story, my vote,
1: so, Jeffrey. that was good. Uh, That was good. You got my vote. Well, let me ask you this. Okay, first of all, for some reason, the progressives have allowed the word liberal, which really, if you you think about liberal, I mean, it stands for protecting the environment, protecting individual freedom, freedom of expression, the right to unionize, living wages. Uh, You know, I could go on accountability, transparency, anti-corruption. Those are the kinds of things that liberalism stands for. And nevertheless, we've allowed the right to make it an ugly word.
2: Right. We have allowed that. Liberals, rather than trying to defend the word, have just run from it. You have half the people saying, oh, well, I don't believe in labels anyway to avoid it. And others merely call themselves progressives and abandon the liberal the liberal label. Now, I have nothing against progressive, which is a fine word with a great tradition behind it. But when you walk away from liberal, which is how Americans all think of the divide between conservatives and liberals, you basically give it to the right and you say, okay, you define the name that everybody's going to assign to me. And then, lo and behold, the right defines it in terms of these lifestyle stereotypes or moves it even further to the left.
1: Mm -hmm. And so in there comes kind of the um, what's the matter with Kansas argument where you have these uh, economic inequalities that become far less important than cultural inequalities. Absolutely. Everybody buys into that.
2: They've created this spurious divide between the NASCAR fans and the latte-sipping people on the coast and so on. And and it's, as I say, utterly spurious that this doesn't exist in terms of uh, the market, and it certainly doesn't exist in terms of political attitudes. In fact, one point I make in the book is that if you look at buying habits of Americans, more Brie buyers are Republicans than are Democrats. But nonetheless, they tell this story where uh, Brie stands in for liberals. It's soft, it's pale, it's runny, it's French.
1: (laughs) Well, look, let let me ask you this. Also in there is this class divide. The the statistics are really pretty incredible. Uh, Almost a half a percent, about one half a percent of middle to lower class people actually become rich. You understand what I'm saying? Before they they become age 65. But if you ask... A working class people they don't even like to call themselves working class anymore now they want to call themselves middle class. if you ask them where they fall, something like ninety percent of them believe that they're middle class and they're making less than twenty thousand dollars a year, which is almost poverty level
2: How, well, you know that, that, that the way I, I talk about those words in the book and there's a kind of trick to that. There's a kind of social meaning of class where most everybody in America thinks of themselves as middle class. And then there's an economic meaning to class. And if you ask people what class are you in, they're going to tell you 90% of the middle class. If you give them a list of classes and say, well, are you middle class or are you working class? About 45% will say they're working class. Mm. So this idea that Americans all think of themselves as middle class and don't realize uh, that there's any distinction between uh, them and Warren Buffett, That simply isn't true. They know very well that that classes exist in America, that America is in many ways like a layer cake.
1: But the the problem with that, Jeffrey, is I think the last poll I saw, there's almost 30 to 40 percent of Americans thought that they would become rich. And then if you look at the ages 18 to 29, if you had a working class person in that age group... 51% believed that they were going to become rich and move through the class ranks. So, I mean, it's this Horatio Alger idea that the Republicans have done a great job taking and wordsmithing to make the average American believe, gee, hey, stick with us. We know you don't have enough money to be a Republican. We know we wouldn't invite you into our country club. Uh, But if you stick with us, you have the chance to to kind of become that Horatio Alger story.
2: Uh, Well, look, it's certainly true. The 2003 Gallup poll showed that half of those under 30 thought they'd be rich someday. On the other hand, what makes for rich is a moving target. People who make under $30,000 a year think that $80,000 a year will make them rich. If you ask people, for example, do you think you'll ever be liable to the estate tax, which now kicks in for couples with a net worth over $5 million, <laughs> most most will say no.
1: But at the same time, they're willing to go along with the Republicans on it to say we shouldn't have it,
2: Right. Well, a large majority say that, and in fact, coming back to this business about slogans, they say it whether you call it the estate tax or the death tax, that change in wording doesn't make much of a difference. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, most people also, over 60%, think that the estate tax will apply to them someday, not because they think they'll have a net worth of $5 million, but because they think at their present income levels they'll be liable to it. So there's a lot of misinformation here that the right has been disseminating, along with words that blur these distinctions. I think one of the interesting things, if you listen to the administration's language, not just in terms of class and the ownership society, but say the way Bush uses entrepreneur, a word he loves to say, the only French word I think he loves to say. You you hear the administration talk about entrepreneurs, that America's 12 million entrepreneurs. Now, those are not people who are sitting down in Silicon Valley funding internet startups. Yeah. Those are guys who got canned from their job 2 weeks ago and now because they have no medical and they have to pay the rent they're doing dump runs in their pickup <laughs> trucks. But they're entrepreneurs that, that, too them and, That's George and, and, and,
1: Bush's entrepreneur class. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: And and so everybody on the right is praying, "Well, it's, it's great that the uh, rate of entrepreneurship is so high among black and Hispanic Americans. It better be."
3: Looking for.
4: On Monday of this week, I was up in Seattle and emceeing a gig, a fundraiser for Congressman Jim McDermott, one of the finest members of the United States House of Representatives, who has been under nine years of relentless legal harassment by uh, Newt Gingrich's bunch and uh, headed up by John Bonner, Bonner, Boehner, whatever. And uh, Bill Clinton spoke at this thing, and... You, those of you who are regular listeners to this program know that I have some uh, differences with some of some of Bill Clinton's policies, particularly with regard to uh, international trade and and his signing the Telecommunications Act. But uh, you know he he did a, a lot of good as a president as well. And and the thing that really struck me, the thing that really uh, frankly surprised me about the speech that he gave in Seattle on Monday night, was how he just came right out and laid out the big picture stuff the stuff that we talk about on this program all the time that i almost never hear politicians talking about i mean you'll hear bernie sanders talk about it from time to time but but by and large this is you know it's not the it's it's not it's it's, it's not the the, the quick soundbite it's not the easy shot stuff and it, and that is the the idea that a a small chunk of the Republican Party has taken over the United States. Not even the Republican Party has taken over the United States. I mean, this is, this is not even the Republican Party that is running the House, the Senate, and the White House, and the Supreme Court. It is a small slice, a cult within the Republican Party that is ideological rather than philosophical. And and, and frankly, you know, not healthy to the United States. And Bill Clinton talked about this. He, he just came right out and talked about it and, I, and straight up. And I was, I was very impressed. And I just want to share some, some pieces of this with you. Here, here's Bill Clinton from Monday night.
5: Because there really is a huge sort of philosophical difference between the two parties, deeply held, that has policy and political implications and produces very different results for the American people.
4: Now that's the difference in philosophy between the two parties, and he's what he's suggesting is that that's a fine thing. In fact, that's a healthy thing that there be a difference in philosophy between the two parties. But but then we get to the guys who are running the country now.
5: They honestly believe the source of America's greatness is in its big companies and wealthy elite, and we believe the source of America's greatness is in its middle class and the promise that everybody who works can be rewarded for it. And. They <laughs> therefore their primary goal when they get political power is to literally to concentrate wealth and power. And that-
4: this is this is such an important point that the the core idea of conservatives and this this is conservatives are right up front about this. I mean just you know read the writings, the classic writings of conservatives. That that the the wealth the, the wealth the greatness of a nation is measured by or it's not measured by, it's, it, it, it's a result of the power of a small number of very wealthy individuals and the power of the large institutions. And the idea on which this country was founded, the liberal ideas of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and James, James Madison, were that the greatness of a country is derived from its middle class, from, from an, a wide and broad and, and deeply educated populace that participates in governance
5: that 's what they believe they should do, and so to them there 's nothing at all wrong with running uh, these kind of unbelievable crony capitalist operations they run, all these no bid contracts and
4: he 's talking here again about the the conservative worldview that the the the, the greatness of a country comes from a wealthy few
5: some money in iraq and and having a, by far even more than in the Reagan years, the largest number of people in charge of health and environmental regulations coming right out of the industries they were supposed to regulate because it concentrates wealth and power. There was nothing wrong in ballooning the cost of the Medicare drug program and having it written so that only Albert Einstein had a big enough brain to understand it (laughs) because they had to cut in the drug companies and the insurance companies because that's what they do, transfer middle-class people's tax money to them and make it the only program that we, we now, it's the only big purchasing program for pharmaceuticals anywhere in America where the purchaser is by law prohibited from bargaining for lower prices for big volume purchases. The VA hospital does it, General Motors does it, every large employer does it. Only you as a taxpayer can't do it because that's not what the providers And the insurers wanted. But that's what they believe they should do to concentrate wealth and power. And because they believe that, they favor a government that is secretive, unaccountable, and constantly increasing executive authority. Even if it requires the president to write, listen to this, 750 signing statements on federal legislation basically saying, I know what Congress said, but that's not the way I read it. We believe in government that is open, accountable, and empowering to people. And it's just a different view. And they believe in their ideology most of us have a philosophy this
4: is a a real important distinction and one that i'm i'm just so pleased to hear clinton
5: making the country has been very well served for a long long time now by having two philosophically different parties one philosophically more conservative one philosophically more liberal but if you have a philosophy It means you're interested in, it it means you're inclined by your values in a certain direction. But you're also interested in hearing arguments and looking at facts. And you actually think you might be wrong every now and then. But if you have an ideology, then the facts are irrelevant. The result is determined, and then you just fix the facts to fit them.
4: To paraphrase the Downing Street memo, you know, I suspect that that was no accident. Bill Clinton continues.
5: So they favor ideology, and we like evidence. And because they have already got their minds made up, they think argument is the province of weak minds, and they prefer attack. So they attack to support their ideology. We argue to support our evidence to bolster the philosophical direction we think the country should go in. So if you favor ideology and attack, you need to be for them. If you favor evidence and argument, you need to be for us. And they also... And they need a divided America to win. They need an enemy. They need a sort of a tribal mentality. And they need to sloganeer, or as Newt Gingrich once said to me in a remarkable moment of candor, I hate it the way we do you, but if we fought you fair, you'd beat us every time. Uh, And they have to convince people we're somehow unworthy because they can't win an argument. So it's got to be a divisive, turn-your-brain-off kind of a deal. Whereas we favor an inclusive community, we'd like for people to get together and have a reasoned argument and figure out what's best for America and go forward. When they are more reasonable, it's amazing what we do. I mean, Hillary's co-sponsored a bill with uh, Senator Frist in the Senate to give electronic medical records to every single American citizen and all providers. It would cut the administrative cost of health care a hundred billion dollars or more a year the rand corporation says 160 billion dollars a year and i hope it'll pass but they've fooled around with it now for almost two years and hadn't passed it
4: well gee if it's going to cut costs 160 billion dollars a year that means it's going to cut the profits of all these big corporations so it's uh, unlikely that's going to pass right
5: when my wife went with John McCain to the northernmost village on Earth, up in Norway, where they to study the effects of global warming, they dragged a bunch of Republican recalcitrants up there to try to prove it wasn't a myth. I thought this was no, no. I, I thought this was a, a good thing, but it's a rare thing because most of Washington is dominated by this sort of ideology, and therefore we have very different policies
4: and that that's the fundamental point that Clinton made in his speech that I thought prob- probably the most important point he gave a whole lot of examples of it on the economy on health care on other issues, and he's starting to talk like frankly like teddy and and uh, Franklin Roosevelt in some ways you know about the the difference between ideology and philosophy the 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 notion that they're you know that living in the evidence-based world the reality based world is a good and healthy thing that we should be coming together and having conversations about how things are and how things should be rather than simply calling each other names and constantly trying to attack each other and trying to bring bring about some sort of a reasonable middle ground where we can all live together thank you very much without sounding too much like rodney king where we can all live together and have a have a decent life where we can have life liberty and the pursuit of happiness like the founders envisioned for this country
6: Something here, and courtesy of our friends at MediaMatters.org, great organization. They keep track of all the nonsense that Fox News, Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, all those clowns, uh, Bill O'Reilly spew out on a regular basis. Uh, and here, naturally, it's the big story with John Gibson uh, coming through. With, uh, uh, do we have the audio for this, too, right, Dave? Because I just listened to it. Yeah, let's hear, play a little bit. This is the big story, John Gibson, Fox News, uh, with his weekend incredibly hot host, um, Julie Pente.
7: It's been claimed by several individuals that Saddam Hussein smuggled his weapons of mass destruction out to Syria before the U.S. invaded Iraq. Now, one report suggests these WMDs might have been put in the hands of Hezbollah in order to strike Israel. Here Can we the pause story? Special Edition, Julie Banderas. So, what do we know?
3: Sorry. All right, son, well, this just adds to the "what if." I mean, just scary pause it what if we if. can. You know, what if Hezbollah had come? All
6: right, so there. So, just for the people listening on the radio, uh, the the on screen graphic said, uh, 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 "What if Saddam's WMDs?" Or it says, "Excuse me," are Saddam's WMDs in Hezbollah's hands? That's their graphic running while John Gibson talks to this host of the weekend version of his show, Julie Banderas, and she comes in and she says, well, that just adds to the what if. All right, so now that's the graphic you're seeing, uh, are Saddam's WMDs in Hezbollah's hands? Before we
7: go further, I just got to say, man, aren't you tired of this? Yeah. I mean, the WMDs that didn't exa- exist in Iraq, and we invaded uh, that country for that, now we're going to invade Syria for those same, same
6: WMDs or, that don't or, exist? Or get involved in, 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 in Lebanon because Hezbollah has them. They don't exist. Hezbollah doesn't have them. Here's a, the rest of a Julie Banderas, and this is this is vintage Fox, journal- this is Fox Journalism. Editorial its best.
3: What if, you know, what if Hezbollah had chemical weapons while it's, of course, purely speculative
2: right now? It is a definite possibility, (laughs) and so is the possibility of Israeli troops carrying out ground invasions into Lebanon. We've been watching them massing up and lining up along the Lebanon border today. But if they do go in, the worry is, what awaits them on the other
3: side?
7: Now, you may remember yesterday Al Jazeera Television airing an interview with Hassan Nasrallah. He's the leader of Hezbollah, and he warns we have a number of surprises up our sleeves. What's he talking about? What does that
6: mean? Okay, stop it. That's right. It says, report, Hussein gave
7: WMDs to Hezbollah. She said, of course... By the way, no, wait, no. It actually said, report, Saddam gave WMDs to Syria. Syria Syria gave gave Uh, WMD to Hezbollah.
6: Right. She says, her exact words, it's purely speculation, but it's a definite possibility.
7: (laughs) What What the fuck?
6: (laughs) And... What report? What report? What it's report no, was no that? No report, because you know it's not a real report. Because they're saying it's purely speculation. Even fuck, Come on. Come hey, on. How desperate are they to start this war? Why aren't normal people who watch Fox listening? There are some of them. I have a couple of friends. Oh, it's overblown. All you have to do is see that. That's it. You can be done. You see that. You can't, you can't argue against that. It's purely speculation,
7: but it's a definite possibility. There are no journalists that work for Fox News Channel. Nope, none.
6: Okay. And any who are, I'll go with Jenk's argument, which I resisted for a long time. I'm not saying that I'll write you off forever if you don't quit, but you ought to quit. You'll get another job.
7: I write you off, and that includes some people I know. I mean, look, Rick Leventhal's a good guy. He used to live with Dave. I'll be honest with you. We played poker with him. He's a good guy. Shep Smith, they played poker with. Dave did. I didn't. Uh, You know, they say he's a good guy. Whatever. First of all, Shep Smith is a clown. Okay, so, and I never really met him, so that's fine. Okay, so Rick Leventhal is a good guy. Seems to do actual uh, reporting from the field. It's a lie. Okay, these are all fake journalists. They're not real. No one should ever hire them as journalists again. They're all part of this Fox Let's Start Wars uh, uh, network. It's a lie.
6: I got a friend who's been a TV reporter, a good one, for a while. He might be looking for a new job. He's thinking about Fox News. Do not do it. You win. It's your show now. So what's it going to be? Because
5: people will tune in. How many train wrecks do we need to see? Before we lose touch on, we thought this was low. Well, it's bad where all the good people go? I've been changing channels, I don't see them on the TV shows. where all the good people go? We got heaps and heaps of what we saw. They got this and that with a rattle attack, testing one, two. man, what you gonna do?
3: If you're at all interested in how the media work, then you're interested in language. The words that are chosen or not chosen to describe a given policy or politician can go a long way toward explaining how people react to what they hear, see, or read. And a new book argues that it's not just our politics that have drifted to the right in America, so too has the language we use to talk about politics. Jeff Nunberg is a linguist at UC Berkeley, he's a regular commentator on NPR, and he's the author of the new book, Talking Right, How Conservatives Turned Liberalism into a Tax-Raising, Latte-Drinking, Sushi-Eating, Volvo-Driving, New York Times-Reading, Body-Piercing, Hollywood-Loving, Left-Wing, Freak Show. It's available now from Public Affairs. Jeffrey Nunberg joins us now in the Studio, welcome to Counterspin.
2: Well, oh, thanks so much for having me.
3: Now, you write in the book near the end, uh, these are your words, the real sign of the right's co-option of the American political culture has been its ability to dominate that core vocabulary and make it the norm not just among its own circles, but in the larger American conversation about politics. You add that the media, even the allegedly liberal outlets, are among the right's most reliable allies in this endeavor. Tell us a little bit about how this happened and how one can spot this in the the political discourse?
2: Well, it, it has to do not with the catchphrases and slogans that get everybody worked up, no child left behind, clear skies, healthy forests, and so on, but with what I call the ground-level language of American political discourse, these words like values and elite and liberal and bias and so forth. And what's remarkable is that when you look at the so-called liberal media, you find that these words are persistently used in a way that Presupposes or favors the position of the right. The phrase liberal values is only a third as common as conservative values. Liberal elite is four or five times as common as conservative elite. Bias is used almost invariably to describe the liberal bias of the media, not the conservative bias of the media. And this in the media and in the conversations that people charge have a liberal bent. How did the right do it? They did it by repetition. They did it by cowing the media. They did it by better organization. They did it by telling a powerful narrative about this culture war in America that's really not based in any reality, but that has become part of the received wisdom of American politics.
3: One of the most conspicuous examples of this seemed to be that infamous 2004 exit poll, moral values was the most important determiner of voter preferences. And to the media, it seemed moral values meant something very specific, even though the question didn't imply that necessarily.
2: Right. In fact, that moral values answer got only, I think, 18 or 19 yeah. percent of the total response. So the poll was misleading in that sense. But the word values is a very good example of the process I'm talking about. The Democrats have been trying to reclaim the words since the early 1980s. Geraldine Ferraro uh, talked about family values in her 1984 acceptance speech. Kerry made a a celebration of American values, his theme for the 2004 campaign. Nonetheless, the word belongs to the right. And, And the reason it belongs to the right is it's become a kind of file header for this whole set of clips about lenient judges in Vermont about the Ten Commandments monument, about kids in Texas who aren't allowed to wear red and green to school in Christmas, about a woman in England who wants to marry a dolphin which is surely what will happen if uh, gay marriage is permitted. All these stories that demonstrate this narrative about the good folks and ordinary people of America whose values and religious principles and patriotism and so forth have been betrayed by these supercilious out-of-touch liberal elites of the coasts. And that's this powerful theme that the right keeps harping on and this enabled them to pull the center of the gravity of the language itself to the right.
3: And you wrote extensively in the book about the long-running effort to demonize the word liberal, a very successful effort. It would seem connected also in the book to this transformation, again within assist from the press, of the term elite. Tell us about that transformation of elite and what it means now.
2: There was a time when elite referred to people of particular power, influence, and wealth, and hence was associated with words like corporate, financial, business, and Mm -hmm. so forth, the way it still is in the British press, left, right, or center, even at Rupert Murdoch's London Times. In the American press, and again, I keep harping, this is the so-called liberal media, nowadays, phrases like media elite, academic elite, Hollywood elite are far more common than phrases like business elite, corporate elite, and so on. And the phrase liberal elite is much more common than conservative elite, what this shows is that the word has been redefined to refer to a difference in lifestyle, a cultural difference, as is the function of all the language of the right, obscures the basic distinctions of power and influence that really keep the country going
3: and the, as you write the disappearance of class from all this instead we 're in this red state blue state narrative. you point out some of the examples are kind of silly. David Brooks of the New York Times writing about how in red states the self is small, whatever that could possibly mean, but this is still the dominant way. We understand these phenomena
2: this is this story that basically by now comes with a system disk that America is divided more than at any time since the Civil War that's insane I mean it's insane in the sense that what we're really talking about is whether you you prefer Leonard Skinner or Radiohead that's the the source of this big cultural division whether you drive a a Volvo or or a Chevy Avalanche and it turns out that even those distinctions aren't very uh, important it turns out for example that uh, most brie buyers are Republicans Not surprising. It's it's sold in upscale neighborhoods where lots of Republicans live. Even so, it's been made by the right to stand in for this stereotype of liberals. It's soft. It's pale. It's runny. It's French.
3: Well, right-wing media critics have made noise over the years about labeling in the media. The media more often note when someone is a conservative than a liberal. This is somehow a sign of a type of media bias. Bernard Goldberg sold many books making this argument. What happened when you tried to test those ideas?
2: Yeah, Goldberg made this claim. He didn't ever count. He said he didn't want to sully his books with data, I guess. He said he didn't want to sound like social science. I did the counts, and it turned out that, in fact, the media actually label liberals as liberal more often than they label conservatives as conservative. Not by that much, and the total number of labels is not that great. I'm not going to make this particular instance evidence for conservative media bias. But the point is that this is just another one of these undocumented claims that gets out there. Everybody repeats, it's an afternoon's work to actually do the counts, and nobody bothers to do it.
3: Now, finally, a lot of this obviously happens in the popular media. You write a lot about the media in the book. There's also significant discussion in the book about what the left and general and maybe the Democrats in particular might try to do to change the language of the poli- of politics. But if the media have adopted this kind of right-friendly template for discussing politics, how possible can it be for any of this to, to change?
2: Conservatives have managed to put their language over for several reasons. One is they've just been able to cow the media into using their words, into saying death tax rather than estate tax and so forth. But the other reason is that they've told a much more persuasive and compelling narrative than Democrats have, with occasional exceptions. Democrats have been timid about producing the kind of populist narrative that focuses on the true divisions in America. And the language is less important, the specific language is less important than that narrative. If you have the story then the words will come out of it. You don't have to recapture values. That's only been a part of American political language for 25 years. It won't be part of American political language 25 years from now. It might be decency. It might be fairness. The important thing is that the language has to stand in for this narrative, and the Democrats have to make that narrative.
1: from the bell and gardeners bay like all the locals here i've had to sell my home too proud to leave i worked my fingers to the bone so i could own my down easter Alexa. and i go where the ocean is
4: deep teddy roosevelt really captured this well and I have got a clip here from Bill Clinton as well from his speech Monday night I want to share with you on, on the topic of healthcare care in the United States and we'll take a, take a few of your phone calls, your thoughts on this as well first though, just to provide the frame this from Sir James Goldsmith in 1993, he's, he's since died but at the time he was one of the wealthiest, one of the five, I think five wealthiest men in the world and billionaire speculator Sir James Goldsmith said and I quote In the great days of the USA, Henry Ford stated that he wanted to pay high wages to his employees so that they could become his customers and buy his cars. Today, we are proud of the fact that we pay low wages. We have forgotten that the economy is a tool to serve the needs of society and not the reverse. The ultimate purpose of the economy is to create prosperity with stability. Sir James Goldsmith. Teddy Roosevelt. This is a speech he gave at the Ohio Constitutional Convention in Columbus, Ohio in 1912. He said, "We are a business people. The great mass of business is, of course, done by men whose business is either small or moderate size. Middle-sized businessmen form an element of strength, which is of literally incalculable value to the nation. Taken as a class, they are among our best citizens. They have not been seekers after earnest fortunes. They have been moderately and justly prosperous by reason of dealing fairly with their customers, competitors and employer and employees. The average businessman of this type, as a rule, is a leading citizen of his community, foremost in everything that tells for its betterment, a man whom his neighbors look up to and respect. He has no sense, uh, he is in no sense dangerous to his community, just because he is an integral part of his community, bone of its bone and flesh of its flesh. His life fibers are intertwined with the life fibers of his fellow citizens. Then Teddy Roosevelt, the Republican Roosevelt, says, So much for the small businessman and the middle sized businessman. Now for big business. It is imperative to exercise over big business, a control and supervision which is unnecessary as regards small and medium-sized businesses. Big business in the past has been responsible for much of the special privilege which must be unsparingly cut out of our national life. The important thing, he said, is this. He says, I don't, I don't believe in making mere size of and by itself criminal. The mere fact of size, however, does unquestionably carry the potentiality of such grave wrongdoing that there should by law be provision made for the strict supervision and regulation of these great industrial concerns. He says, the important thing is, that, is this, that under such government recognition, we shall be most vigilant never to allow big corporations to crystallize into a condition which shall make private initiative difficult. We we will protect the rights of the wealthy man, but we maintain that he holds his wealth subject to the general right of the community to regulate its business use as the public welfare requires. We grudge no man a fortune which represents his own power and sagacity exercised with with entire regard to the welfare of his fellows. We stand for the rights of property. But we stand even more for the rights of man. Teddy Roosevelt and, and uh, brilliant. 8466 Our telephone number. Let me let me just share with you. Bill Clinton. This is Monday Monday night. I was in Seattle and emceeing a gig with uh, uh, with uh, Congressman. Uh, well, Bill. Actually, Bill. I want to get to the Bill Clinton clip here. Uh, Congressman Jim McDermott, of course, and and it, in fact, it was really a fundraiser for for Jim McDermott. But and then and then Bill Clinton uh, gave the I guess the keynote speech of the evening, as it were. Here's a little clip from it. Bill Clinton on health care.
5: Their answer to the health care problem is to further deconstruct the system, make it more inefficient, put more of the risk on people that can't do it, have the, the insurance pools be smaller, and and have people bear unbearable risk. Look, all you got to and we could talk about this tomorrow morning, but I just. You need to go out and say, people say there's no difference. Remember these facts.
4: Now, as he's going to get into some statistics here. It's really shocking because what it illustrates is a for-profit health care system being so much less efficient than the... Single payer healthcare systems of other countries all around the world. These these overhead when when Clinton costs overhead percentage. That's in most cases that's money going right to the bottom line, going right into the pockets of stockholders. Where the millions, or in the case of the second largest healthcare insurance company in the United States, the 1.5 billion dollars in compensation he got last year. This is what this is what Clinton's talking about here.
5: You don't remember anything else I say. We spend 16 percent of our income on healthcare. The next most expensive rich countries in the world are Switzerland and Canada. they spend eleven percent. The difference in America between eleven and sixteen is over seven hundred billion dollars a year
4: seven hundred billion dollars a year there's a reason why Bill Frist's daddy with you know who's ran HCA the big healthcare company is one of the richest men in America a multi-billionaire that that you know seven hundred plus billion dollars a year. Uh, One of the reasons
5: is that our administrative costs for both insurers and providers of health care is 34%.
4: Now, keep in mind, Medicare's administrative cost is 3%.
5: No other country's administrative cost is over 19. That 15% difference is $280 billion a year.
4: $280 billion that uh, in large part just ends up being profit.
5: Now, we insure eighty four percent, nobody else insures less than a hundred. and here's the last figure I want you to remember: General Motors has got fifteen hundred dollars a car in health care costs. Toyota has one hundred and ten. You tell me how we're going to preserve automobile manufacturing in America.
4: That's a good question again, this is even a simple matter of competitiveness
5: and unbelievably enough, there was an article in the press yesterday <laughs> when Hillary and I sit around and read the papers in the morning, we trade off articles and I found this one first, which tickles me, but I, I couldn't believe it. All of these big companies with big health insurance plans are now paying their employees to go to Thailand and India to have surgery because they can save so much money. A lot of you nodding your heads. You probably saw it yesterday. Now, go figure. If you think that's a good system, by all means, support the Republicans. But if you would like to redirect that money into covering the uninsured and out of the administrative system, and providing the most, you know, sort of modern management, quality controls, and having big insurance pools which lower administrative costs, the Medicare administrative costs about 3%, by the way, then you ought to be for us. and. This is—I could go through issue after issue after issue where their ideology will not let them look at the evidence.
4: And this was the theme of Clinton's speech: was you know the, the how destructive Republican uh, conservative ideology is.
7: Get back to Dick Cheney for a second, because over the weekend I told you I figured out what the missing uh, part of the puzzle. Uh, n- look, we always knew that uh, Bush was not very bright, uh, but this latest round with the GA Summer thing put me over the top. Believe it or not, uh, you know I always thought he was dumb. Let's get real. We talked about it a lot, but I now I realize he's not just stupid. He's profoundly stupid. He really has no grasp of the issues. He really is just nothing but a puppet. And uh you know, I mean, come on, Russia's big and so is China. Okay, p- put that aside. Put ironically the fact that he has no idea what the word ironic means and he's our president. Put all that aside, but the the actual policy issues. He really doesn't get it. He does as I loved you uh, Richard Wolfe's euphemism. Does he understand the complexities of the issues? Up to a point. God, our president shouldn't be up to a point, okay? He should get all of it. He ain't ain't even close. So he's being manipulated. He's a puppet. That part of the puzzle we all got, okay? Yeah, but but, but he's being manipulated by people
6: who also don't understand the
7: complexities. (laughs) Well, that's another problem. That's certainly true. Uh, And the uh, neoconservatives, we always uh, understood, you know, pretty much what their motivations are, global domination, help out Israel, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Rumsfeld wanted to test the army, and and in his new gadgets and his new philosophy, we got that motivation. Okay, check check check. The p- part of the puzzle I didn't, two parts I didn't understand was. Why is Cheney so evil? <laughs> right? Like, seriously, like, what's his problem? Why does he want to create more and more wars? What does he get out of it? What does he think America gets out of it, assuming he isn't pure evil or a comic book character? And secondly, why is there this rift between Cheney and Rumsfeld and the neocons from time to time? Why do they seem to disagree? I didn't understand that. And finally, I put it together, and when I tell you, you're all going to go, Of course, you idiot! If We knew that from day one it's because cheney's motivations have to do with oil and energy and a lot of times that matches up with the neocon philosophy and the neocon goals more than the philosophy and they have the same objectives uh but sometimes it doesn't and when the two clash heads uh when they butt heads uh goes down the neocon philosophy goes down and the oil philosophy wins and So then you think that what was tripping me up about that for a long time and the epiphany I had over the weekend, again, might be comical, but I want to tell you, is why don't we just buy the goddamn oil? It would be so much cheaper, right? First of all, the gas prices would have been so much cheaper if we didn't have this instability, et cetera. And we wouldn't have to spend $600 billion that we're going to spend at the least on the Iraq war. And we wouldn't have all these people killed. We'd just buy the goddamn oil. And then the epiphany I had was, it's not about the people buying the oil, it's about people selling the oil. So Dick Cheney doesn't care about the American interests or the uh, co- interests of the American consumers or the American market. He cares profoundly about the people who make the oil deals and their interests and the people who are selling the oil. So. If Iraq and Iran get to do whatever they like and sell the oil and the Persian Gulf and the Middle East get to sell the oil to through whoever they like, they will, will still get it here in America. It's not like they're not going to sell it to us. They're definitely going to sell it to us. It'll be cheaper. But it might be sold through a Chinese company or a Russian company or a French company. It might not be sold through ExxonMobil. And the parts that they use and the services they use might not be through Halliburton and Kellogg Brown and Root. And et cetera, and Bechtel, et cetera, et cetera, and those guys contribute a lot to, of course, the Republicans, and so they have that incentive. We, you know, deliver for these guys; they deliver for us; they keep us in office. But furthermore, I think that Cheney honestly believes, and this is this is the, so you, you know, because I I don't buy the evil argument because I just don't think that there is any such thing as evil because I think that people, everybody, in their own mind thinks. I'm doing the right thing. No matter how wrong it is what they're doing, I think internally they have a justification for it. And I think Cheney's justification for it is, look, we help American oil companies. They're going to watch out for us. They're going to make sure the oil keeps flowing. Uh, it's going to help the American economy, it's going to help the energy sector, the energy sector is very important, and it's going to help our geopolitical uh, interests in the long run. And these liberals and these moderates and this reality-based community, they don't get it. And these regular Republicans. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And they don't get it. And what's most important geopolitically is oil and then make sure that we sell the oil and and, ca- and control the oil through the American companies rather than the French, the Russian, and the yeah. Chinese companies. I,
6: I agree with you, except I, I think, and it goes to, to, to believing w- that his worldview thinks, again, that he's doing what's best. I, I think there's more to be said for the geopolitical part of it, and less confidence that we would always be able to buy the oil. I think that that is a... Legitimate concern on their part, and they think the only way to do it is to guarantee that sort of we control it, we control the apparatus and that and that means that American companies control it i don 't know that it 's a little irrelevant of what 's the primary motivation. it certainly works well, it certainly feeds the machine but uh, uh, but I think that 's a significant part of it, of course
7: and look here 's the thing uh, the, the, there are real incentives in the world, and a gigantic amount of money is a tremendous incentive. Those companies, as we all know, are making record profits, and they're making billions on top of billions of dollars that they wouldn't make if other, the Russian, the French, etc., the Chinese companies uh, got those deals in, I- instead. And so they have, all the incentive in the world to put as much political pressure as they possibly can on all the people that they contribute to and they contribute to a lot of politicians and this is why part of the why the system is so fundamentally broken because we don't have public financing of campaigns we have campaigns that run on money and that money comes from big contributors like big oil so the interests of the politicians and the system is to make sure those people get what they want, not necessarily what the American people need or want. So it's not about you buying the oil. It's about the people who sell the oil. Maybe that's as obvious to some. Maybe I'm a little slow uh, in coming around to that realization, but, but I thought I'd lay that out there. All right. Thanks. You can all go. <laughs> so the funny thing is, it turns out at the end of all this, the guys that I used to mock uh, back at Penn in, you know, during the first Persian Gulf War that had those blood for oil right. posters were a little right. Just a little right. Maybe yeah. a lot right. Yeah. I mean, and, it's, and
6: it's just by the same token that um, – uh, I mean, they're making a point. And maybe the people who say uh, Hamas or Hezbollah are peace and and freedom are making a point, too. But uh, both signs are ridiculously simplistic.
7: Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And there's a lot of complexities. And, And as I explained before, everybody's got a different motivation. And they all work. And if they all match up, then you have the Iraq war. But if they don't match up, then you can't get the Iran war or whatever war they want. And so it's a lot more complicated than that. But I think it was important for me to at least, figure, at least in my own mind, figure out what Cheney's motivations were. And I think that explains it. And by the way, if if I'm right about that, that energy task force that he had in the beginning yeah. before 9/11, remember before 9/11, huge important meeting. That that right there, and that's what he kept, what he tried so hard to keep secret. And he went on a hunt, uh, duck hunting or quail hunting He shot trip. a guy to keep it secret. <laughs> the quail hunting trip uh, with, uh, with Scalia. With Anton Scalia, right. Yeah, and I had him go on Air Force Two, et cetera. And, and Scalia Sur-
6: did not recuse
7: himself. Right, and, and that was huge. And but that then was- Scalia surprised everybody and voted against Cheney. Yeah, of course not. He voted with Cheney, and the Supreme Court made sure that that energy task force, uh, their c- uh, conversations, including Ken Lay, by the way, uh, were kept secret. So now I have a better understanding, I think, of how fundamentally important that energy task force conversation was. Yeah. So right. there you have it, in a nutshell.
0: Speaking of ideology getting in the way of reason and logic, I got a great email today, and uh, it's great for several reasons. First, it, it's—I mean—it's on topic. And there's no way this person could have known that when he wrote it. But also what he says is exactly, you know, something that I agree with 100%. And I just, I love to hear people uh, tell me stuff I already know. Um, And so what he's talking about is gay marriage and the way, you know, we're not talking about the Rick Santorum gay marriage leads to bestiality argument. We're talking about the people who are kind of sympathetic, and they're like, well, you know, I want them to have all their rights, I just don't want them to redefine the word, and that just makes me uncomfortable. And so this is what he says, and I I agree 100% with this. Quote, If I may offer one more example, then take my position on gay marriage. My very simple position is this. Marriage should not even fall under the province of law. Marriage is a cultural construct and practice with a great deal of grounding in religious traditions. There's no proven biological imperative for humans to be strictly monogamous or strictly heterosexual. It may be that I'm undereducated, but I can't claim to have read or heard this position on marriage from anyone else. And actually, my uh, end quote, sorry. And my, my favorite part of that is actually the last sentence where he says he hasn't ever heard anyone else have that position. And I love that because it's totally true. I have literally heard that from one person ever. And it struck me so profoundly that when I heard that um, almost two years ago, that... I I mean, I've not only adopted it and held on to it for that long, but I could tell you exactly where I was when I heard it. I was in the car. I could tell you what street I was on, what house I was in front of. Like, it struck me like a bolt of lightning, and the person talking about it was a British guy talking about the way they do it over over there, and basically it's that the government is in charge of civil unions only and they dole out all of the the rights and benefits. And then the word marriage is completely relegated to the realm of the church. Or whatever kind of organization you like. So if, you, if you're if you a gay couple and you want to get married, you'd go to a church. And so you just have to find a church willing to do it. And there are plenty of them out there. And why would you want to go to a church that wouldn't want to recognize it anyway, so so it 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 totally works out. so if you're if you're one of those, um, they should have all their rights, but don't redefine the word kind of people, then I think that that system would completely undercut that whole argument and not it doesn't even undercut it in a way to say this is why your argument is flawed. It's just to say, that's an argument I can live with. Let's just change the system so that the system no longer offends you. I think it's brilliant. And so, Devin, there you go. The only reason that you hadn't heard anybody else ever espouse that particular position is because you beat me to it. Because that's exactly what I would have said, uh, either asked the, the question or had I just had it ever come up and I'd remembered to, to mention it. That's exactly uh, the the position I would go with. And I think that's exactly what we should do in this country. So that is going to have to be it. I've got more to say, but no time to say it. So I will be back next week. In the meantime, check out bestoftheleftpodcast.com. And while you're there, go ahead and check out this support the show page as well. Have a good one, everybody.